Did you know? But amongst the Islamic State women detained in the al camp in Syria, some women longing for the return of the caliphate have set up a Justice for Sisters crowdfunding campaign on social media to fund their escape from the detention camp. That's similar to their male counterparts, women who joined IS leveraged social media to showcase life in the caliphate and influenced others to join and abandon Western societies. But memes and imagery of attractive white women pictured in fields of wheat, also known as the wheat field trend, are a propaganda strategy of its own among far-right violent extremists. This is Tech Against Terrorism. I'm Anne Kranen. And I'm Megan Jenna. In this episode, we are discussing the role of women in terrorist and violent extremist online networks and the influence of gender in said networks. The so-called jihadi bride label that made so many headlines at the peak of the Islamic State was not only misleading and simplifying the reasons for why women might join a terrorist organization out of a desire of romance, it was also a mainstream and reductionist interpretation of IS's targeted strategy to recruit women in its ranks. Research has shown that women join terrorist and violent extremist groups for similar reasons as their male counterparts. In the case of IS, these reasons were mostly linked to a feeling of isolation and a desire to help the international Muslim community, which they perceived to be as under attack. Understanding that women can hold multiple roles in a terrorist organization and that they can be essential to recruit others and raise a future generation of supporters, the Islamic State had dedicated an entire plan of its propaganda efforts to recruit women. From manifesto specifically written for women to a sisters of the Islamic State section in its online propaganda. Women are not just being involved in Islamist terrorists, but are also present amongst far-right bound extremist movements. Though the exact percentage of women participating in far-right violent extremists remains a debated question amongst researchers, with some estimating that women make up to 50% of far-right violent extremist participation. In a 2018 article analyzing female participation in online far-right communities, Megan Squire found that most women engaging in far-right violent extremists did so with groups displaying a mostly anti-immigrant, neo-confederate and anti-Muslim rhetoric, rather than with groups with a more manosphere ideology. Her study also underlined the importance of groups created for women and made up of a majority of female participants. The open label with wheat field groups, in reference to the imagery of white women in fields of wheat, picturing a quote, idealized vision of white womanhood, unquote, popular amongst far-right bound extremists. Whilst terrorism and violent extremism are all too often reduced to a man-only phenomenon, the use of online platforms for terrorist and violent extremist purposes is shedding a new light on the participation of women amongst those groups. Women's involvement in terrorism or violent extremism as such is not a phenomenon that began with the so-called jihadi brides. Rather, women's presence on social media particularly highlighted their engagement and made it a phenomenon no longer possible to ignore for counterterrorism experts. To help us understand how women's engagement in terrorism and violent extremism manifests itself online, how the use of the internet has shifted women's role in such movements, as well as how gender is reflected in terrorist and violent extremist online propaganda. We are joined today by Dr. Joanna Cook and Dr. Elizabeth Pearson. Joanna is an assistant professor in terrorism and political violence at Leiden University and a senior project manager, as well as an editor-in-chief at the International Centre for Counterterrorism. She recently published a book on gender and counterterrorism, a woman's place in US counterterrorism since 9-11. Elizabeth is a lecturer at the Cyber Threats Research Center at Swansea University, who specializes in gender extremism and counter-extremism. Elizabeth notably focuses on the offline and online aspects and their intersections. 
Just before we dwell into the heart of today's podcast, we want to note that our discussion on women's role in the online sphere of extremism will adopt a gender approach. Namely, gender describes hierarchical relationships of femininity and masculinity and the meaning produced through these discourses. Whereby one often attributes characteristics of rationality, agency, and a political public nature to men, emotion, passivity, and the apolitical domestic sphere are associated with women. Therefore, when women join terrorist or extremist organizations, it is often deemed to be for reasons such as romance, or because they were groomed into extremism following their feminine, apolitical nature. This denies women the agency in joining a terrorist organization and presumes them innocent. Similarly, this also holds consequences for men who join terrorist organizations, as they are deemed political and therefore solely culpable for their own actions. By taking gender into account, one can look beyond these discursive constructions around women and men who join terrorist organizations to come to the real reasons, roles and threat levels of men and women when having joined an extremist group. Therefore, for this podcast, we will be adopting a gender lens when analyzing women's involvement in the online extremist sphere. Hi, Joanna and Elizabeth. Welcome to the show. We're super excited to have you here. And let's kick off with the questions. Thanks for having us here today. Thank you. Okay, so the first question to set up today's discussion a bit. When discussing women in extremism, the term gender often comes up. Could you tell us what gender entails and why it is important to study it when considering terrorism and violent extremists? So when we're talking about gender and women, often the two terms are confused. Um, People talk about gender and they actually mean women. But when we're thinking about gender, it's it's about gender as a social construct. So we are thinking about the values that terrorist groups attach to being a man or being a woman. And we're also talking about power dynamics, which is really important to understand in the context of violent organisations, because power is what they're after. And power within those organisations is very often what tells us what roles men and women within those organisations will have. So from my perspective, it's absolutely crucial to be thinking about gender, thinking about power relations and dynamics um, between men and women, and how groups interpret those to understand what it is that they uh, want men and women to do and the roles that they'll have in that organization. Just to expand on it even a little more here, you know, it's socially constructed and there's so many different kind of attributes that can be socially constructed as well that really intersect with gender. So you think about things like class or race or ethnicity or poverty level. And so all of these become related to how gender is interpreted and understood in those relative roles of men and women in a society. Um, so I think, you know, when you're thinking about gender, you do have to go beyond just looking at uh, males and females. You really have to consider the broader sociocultural context in which uh, gender is being deployed and how it's being analyzed. And I guess like one of the one of the things that I teach in, uh, in my course are, are a really useful tool is gender analysis. And so what gender analysis can give us uh, in terms of how we understand or look at uh, violent extremist groups like it allows us to to systematically uh, gather and identify information on those gender differences and on those social relations. And so it allows us to think about things like the roles that uh, men and women may have in a group, how labor is divided, the opportunities or the constraints that are associated with being a man or a woman. And frankly, what kind of interests or opportunities men and women, boys and girls, and those of uh, of different uh, diverse gender identities perceive 
in adhering to a group or an ideology and their participation in it. So gender really gives us a really uh, an incredibly useful lens or tool by which to better understand these groups as well. Basically, if you don't look at gender or you don't think about gender, you're only seeing part of the picture of what's going on in these groups, I think. Bingo. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, I think that sets the scene very, very well. To go into that, what does gender tell us about women who join violent extremist groups and particularly their reasons for joining? So I think when you look at any individual who joins a, a violent extremist group, uh, there's a number of ways you can look at it kind of based on uh, on academic approaches, right? So the, the first way I think is looking at what we call push and pull factors. So what that means is what are the, the factors in an individual's life that, that push them out of what was their kind of life before and towards this new ideology, this new group to, to go join something like like ISIS or a far right group or or another kind of violent extremist organization, but simultaneously pull factors. What are the aspects or the ideology or the rules or the benefits that the group has offered them that pull them towards that, right? And so when you look at uh, how individuals join a, a violent extremist group through push and pull factors, and you look at that through a gender lens, you could see how a woman's route, uh, her pathway into an organization might be distinct from that of a man, or the the factors in her life that draw her towards an organization or push her out of her previous uh, position might be different than that of a of a man or an older woman or a younger woman as well. So when we look at gender in terms of recruitment, for me, it's really looking at how gender informs those push and pull factors and those those factors and pathways into an organization. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean as well, like building on what um, Joe just said is, you know, it doesn't mean that your reasons are going to be vastly different, but it does mean that it's important to think about these things. Because I think for a long time, people were trying to understand violent extremist groups. And, you know, since I've been studying this, most of the focus has been on the violent jihad. And there was this always this, this assumption that we're talking about men. So we're only thinking about the push and pull factors for men and women were always kind of trying to say look there's women here as well and I think that um, some of the complexity in the push and pull factors was missing there was not much discussion around um, how they might vary so for instance something that people talked about a lot like you know spaces of radicalization there was a lot of discussion around mosques or gyms when we're talking about um, violent Islamist groups and no real kind of thinking around what the gender norms in those spaces might be, who they were populated by and why um, and how that might impact men and women differently. And, you know, when we're coming to think about talking about online radicalization, which we'll talk about in more depth later, these things really matter. And I think this sort of became apparent to me and some research that I was doing with Rusi, where we were talking to communities with experience of um, losing both men and women actually to Daesh. And they were explaining the kind of different social pressures that were on men and women. So um, young men struggling to be resilient in the face of unemployment, being offered money to join Daesh, um, young women facing different pressures and so the reasons were not vastly dissimilar. They, p- people were pulled by the ideology. They were pulled by a sense of adventure. But there were, there were nuances to the way in which the gender dynamics of those push and pull factors 
worked. And that depended on people's personal circumstances, how they understood their gender identity within a particular gendered context, you know, in their family, in their school, in their community. And then that overlaid with what messages, what gendered messages groups like, in this case, Daesh, were sending out about what they wanted from people. So um, so it gives a lot more thinking about gender, applying the gender lens that, that Joe talked about is is a way of seeing in in much more minute granular detail what is happening in people's lives and how gender is impacting those different stages of that process. So to not have that really sort of misses a lot. To jump into kind of the women in ISIS, in the mainstream discussion on the reasons for why women join IS, we often heard the contentious term jihadi brides. Elizabeth, could you tell us a bit more about what it means and its actual relevance in explaining women's involvement in terrorist groups such as ISIS? You know, it's, it's a red herring. It's a, it became a sort of media, became essentially a media term for thinking about these few cases initially took people by surprise of young women going off to join Daesh. And they, they probably shouldn't have taken um, anyone by surprise because women were, all, were always active, perhaps in support roles and therefore less visible, in groups that supported violent jihad, groups that wanted the imposition of Sharia. And, you know, it just becomes this kind of moniker that that misses a lot because Jihadi Bride doesn't really tell us anything about the situations that young women or older women, um, as was often the case, were leaving behind all the reasons why they were going. There's a lot of discussion, obviously, when you're talking about gender, about this important word agency, um, about not just recognising that women participate, but recognising that they choose often to participate in violent extremist groups. And it was a phrase that kind of missed the agency here. It's that they're always, women are very often thought of as just only getting involved because men get involved. But to sort of caveat that a bit, it is the case that um, a lot of young women um, and young men, for that matter, one of the attractions and one of the selling points from the Daesh perspective of travelling to join Daesh was the idea of marriage, the idea of marriage, not as something trivial, but as part of the fulfillment of, of your faith as a, as a Muslim, as part of the deen of Islam involves getting married, having a family, and that, that's part of being a good Muslim. So there's a, a, a though the term jihadi bride is, is a misnomer, I don't like it, and I wish that people wouldn't use it. There is something more complex to this idea of uh, being a bride and marriage. When I was doing my PhD research, I was talking to uh, a couple of young women who had been um, Daesh supporters online. And this idea of being a good Muslima, of finding the right sort of Muslim man was actually extremely important. And it wasn't something trivial. It was to do with political engagement. It was to do with a religious engagement. And they took this, they didn't like the term, but they took the idea of marriage very seriously. So I think that you know, while I don't like the term, I do think that there is something more to that term that is interesting to explore in terms of why young women were, um, for a period, attracted to Daesh and, and travelling to join Daesh. So that it's more complex than the media would use it to convey, I think. Liz captured it quite well. And I guess the, the only thing I'd say is that, you know, when we think about gender, we often think about it in terms of kind of gender binaries. So the very different uh, roles and attributes and such uh, associated with being male or female. But, you know, again, men also uh, joined ISIS or one of the uh, attractions to joining ISIS for some men was that idea of marriage. You know, if you came from a very difficult background, 
uh, where you could not afford the dowry for a marriage, you know, ISIS offered you a chance to get married and, uh, you know, also things like slaves as well, right? You know, by focusing on only jihadi brides, it also, I think, negates from that understanding of why some of those men uh, joined as well for very complex reasons. And in terms of the sort of the stereotypes around women and extremism and the potential for denying them the agency in joining the organization, um, would you say that there is a similar dynamic at play with women joining far-right violent extremist movements? There's no end of stereotypes sort of abounding in, in the literature. And I guess rather than stereotype, just a kind of complete negation of women's participation in the first place, which is understandable because a lot of people have been studying um, violence. And if we're thinking about you know, the political violence is not, or violent extremism is not limited to the two ideologies which we're really focusing on today, but these are the, the far right and uh, violent jihad are the two ideologies which are the sort of most salient at the moment. First of all, you've got to see, you've got to acknowledge that even if it's mainly men that participate in violence, or even if it's mainly men that you see on demonstrations, even if a movement is is largely um, male in terms of numbers, that doesn't mean that the women that are present and that are there don't count. You know, one of the things that, you know, Joe and Gina Vale's report did on the, the numbers traveling to Daesh, um, men, women, minors um, from all around the world is just make that really clear in those numbers and when you see the numbers even if the percentages are kind of small it's quite staggering they, they matter each one of those numbers matters and so you do have a similar thing with with um the far right in that again you've got largely homosocial uh movements and the far right as is as an umbrella term is is you know, encompasses a, a large number of groups with different ideologies, with different spaces for men and for women, not all of them um, as accepting of women, for example, in leadership roles as others. But you still have this same, you still have this struggle to get the whole, a holistic picture in gender terms being recognised by outside of just, you know, gender scholars, people who look at gender. And in terms of the press, I mean, there hasn't been quite the same sort of phenomenon. Jihadi Bride was kind of essentially a sort of media term. But um, you do you do see the same issues, and, it, and it's largely a factor of the kind of ideologies that we're looking at, which are ideologies which have very distinct um, gendered roles, gender binaries. As Joe mentioned, they they make they delineate very clearly between roles for men and women, and then partly both of those movements are doing that as a kind of rebuttal of practices, cultural norms, and shifts that they are pushing back against um, in the rest of society. So yes, you do see that. Really kind of emphasizing the point that when we look at terrorism full stop and violent extremist groups, we tend to focus on those who carry the guns or those who set off the bombs. And so it really does negate from looking at that broader network that supports the entire organization, the ideology, how a group can carry on even if uh, you have an individual taken off the battlefield how that uh, how that ideology gets carried forward generation to generation, you know. So in, in short, you know, we do tend to focus a lot on those that carry the guns and conduct the violence, and it does negate from really understanding the broader network and support base and uh, movements writ large and the very kind of complex roles that both men and women play in all aspects of these. 
Can I? Yeah, I think you know, and also it won't, well, you asked the question before about why women join violent extremist groups, and that there's so many different reasons. And just because somebody isn't necessarily carrying a gun or setting off a bomb, they it doesn't mean they're any less ideologically committed. It's about visibility a lot of the time. And you know, when you look at Daesh and you look at how determined it was to produce this this proto-state in which it absolutely has got a, a vision going forward of a functioning society. You can't have a functioning society that doesn't have men and women. And Daesh always made that clear in its propaganda. There are roles for the men, the role to carry a, a gun, the role for the woman is different, but it's no less ideologically committed. And it's really important to understand that, you know, some of the things that we sort of stereotypically associate with um, men, such as violence and women, such as being brought in through friends, are, are also true in reverse as well, that women can support violence. Some women actually want to take part. We've had plots in which women have been um, stopped from committing acts of violence. It's not, um, it's not what uh, Daesh had called for, but it's what some people were intending to do nonetheless. And we have men who are drawn into organisations through their emotional connections, their friends, their um, siblings, people that they know, the, the promise of marriage. So it's about, you know, when we're thinking about gender, it's about sort of trying to free ourselves as well of kind of some of the assumptions that we enter into this space with, either because historically um, the literature has not considered them or because, you know, we bring our own sets of assumptions into this space as well. Liz, you mentioned online radicalization and the importance of gender in this regard. So allow me to jump back on that to shift the discussion to topics of particular interest for us at Tech Against Terrorism. So mainly women's role in terrorist and violent extremist online network. So could you tell us more about this as well as whether, in your opinion, the online sphere provides maybe a new opportunity for women to become more involved in violent extremists? Well, I mean, if you're thinking about research in the online space and violent extremism, it's been going on for a really long time now. If you look at some of the uh, people who've been doing this for, you know, like Maura Conway, been looking at, you know, YouTube, it's not really new. Whether it offers a new opportunity for women, it's evolving, certainly. If you look back at some sort of past research, it makes very clear that women have uh, been, again, sort of involved um and potentially for reasons of accessibility, that there were more opportunities to be um, active in different ways in online forums or producing videos or on social media and all of the different platforms that are constantly evolving all the time as groups evolve and respond to the measures that are taken against them. So it provides, online spaces provide everyone with new opportunities. And there's certainly evidence that um, in particularly if, with ideologies and with groups where there are gender restrictions, where there is um, restriction on women's access to public space or that um, where young women, uh, and this is something that came out of the research that we were doing in the five country research and also the research that I was doing when I was uh, doing my PhD, that you know, people said to us who were working in the countering space that um they saw young women with very, very active and large social media networks that uh, it, when they were becoming involved with Daesh, they were capitalising on those networks and they were using them to recruit um, their friends. They knew exactly how to do it because it happened to them themselves. And that for some, not all, Muslim, young Muslim women, 
there were cultural restrictions which made it easier for them to access their ideology uh, online, to make the connections, to have those friendships. And also, of course, a group like Daesh was actively reaching out, systematically trying to recruit young men and young women in, in ways that have been likened to child sexual exploitation online and that grooming word, which is, a, you know, it's a difficult word because it does imply a lack of agency. But certainly there is some evidence emerging that the, the strategies were, were very similar. So yes, I think it changes the space. The online space changes the dynamics, has changed gender dynamics. Also, it allows people the freedom to not use their own identity, perhaps. Um, it's a difficult space to research for gender because you don't always know whether people are being honest and open about even their gendered identity in, in that space. So yes, I think the evidence is there that it has created different opportunities and and we'll continue to do so I think as again as this evolves and we're moving from to more and more different platforms with different functionalities and I think when we're when we look online as well there's been so many cases documented you know coming up and even things like court cases now to do with women in ISIS that offer really interesting reflections or perspectives again for looking at other ideologies as well so for example uh, the far right online or other ideologies online as well so, for example, there was a case, uh, Ines Madani, uh, she was uh, one of the f- women uh, recently convicted of a Notre Dame car bomb plot. So her and uh, five, a total of five women had uh, planted a bomb in a car that the bomb didn't go off, thankfully. But, um, you know, she was a really interesting case because uh, it came out in, uh, in the court proceedings that she'd posed as a male militant online to recruit other women. Uh, she'd been instructed by a male who was a, a recruiter and a handler in Syria. And so some really interesting uh, dynamics come out of this. It makes you think a little bit more about the kind of online networks uh, that they're, that individuals are able to access, how they're able to obtain things like instructions or guides or technical knowledge, uh, how they're able to find um, like-minded individuals online as well in a way that they might not be able to access in real life. So I think, you know, the online space just really opens up a lot more opportunities uh, for individuals to access, you know, not just women, uh, men as well, but perhaps in in areas where it's been a little bit more restricted for women, it does really open up the means, the information, the networks, uh, and the opportunities for them to participate in ways that they, they just hadn't before. So what you said about the Notre Dame plot and the fact that she passed as a man to specifically recruit other women is really interesting. And we were actually wondering, with regard to propaganda efforts, are women particularly tasked in recruiting other women or is that just another gender bia that we have to deconstruct? It it depends very much on the ideology as well, I think, too, because if there's very restrictive gender roles, you know, and it's perhaps more encouraged for women to interact only with other women, you know, women can be key recruiters in this sense. And there were a number of really uh, famous uh, or infamous, I should say, recruiter, female recruiters with ISIS. You know, Aksa Mahmoud was one of them, you know, a woman out of Scotland who, her and another one, um, a woman who was named a bird of Jana, you know, uh, out of Malaysia. But online, they would, they would uh, share their stories, they would uh, really kind of target memes and images and narratives towards women. And very practically as well, in the case of Aksa Mahmoud in particular, provide very clear direction and instruction as to how women could travel over to Islamic State. I think this is quite, a, quite important as well to, to highlight and again, kind of opens up 
questions about how women can access other women. In the case of Can in Canada as well, we did have a case where there was a female recruiter who was offering uh, religious uh, lessons online that started off as religious lessons until she uh, started uh, kind of leaning them towards her interpretation of of this ideology and fielding uh, individuals to uh, Syria and Iraq. So there are multiple cases, many, many cases of women recruiting other women as well. And But again, it kind of goes down to what ideology the group has and what those gendered norms and gendered interactions are prescribed as in that group. I think, yeah, I think, you know, when you're looking at Daesh online, at the sort of height of when they were trying to get people from a variety of different countries to um, make hijra, as they called it, to uh, to travel. Uh, and I was looking, um, I was doing a study uh, around 2015 in that summer. I set out to try and look at what the differences were in male and female or self-identifying male and female behaviours online. Think of Daesh, it's all about um, women's separation from men, separation of roles, separation physically. Um, and, and they were constructing this online as well, this exact same sort of parallel universe where everybody's, you know, if you wanted to look good, your bio would obviously have, you know, brothers don't DM me. And there was this absolute separation of spaces. So women were looking to other women to tell them because that was the kind of decorous thing to, to do. It was not OK to be um, messaging brothers that you were not going to, that were not your family members or that you were not going to be in a relationship with. And there, there was, a, you know, at one point on Twitter before they purged um, that space of those accounts, you know, there were plenty of women who claimed to be already there, who were directing um, other women to uh, other platforms. Ask FM was a very popular one at that time or to websites where they, you know, had specific list of, you know, questions. What do I bring? How much money do I need? Do I need weapons? Will I, what clothes will I need to bring? How do I get to the border? What happens when I get to the, all these really, really sort of detailed, pragmatic questions, which were women guiding women. But then when I was doing the later kind of PhD research, what was really interesting to me was to see the ways in which those kinds of those barriers between uh, men's and women's communities, because they're very active men's and women's communities. They had their different roles, you know, women policing other women, women shaming men into action, not just trying to recruit women, but shaming men to, to, to be recruited as well. I was talking to somebody who, who I met online. She had been in a relationship with somebody who was had high status, a man who had high status. And she said to me, oh, you know, those um, those Twitter biographies, she said, you know, that's not that's not the truth, because she said my husband was always getting messages from, you know, what she described as groupies, basically sort of um, burka wearing groupies. And um, she said it really, you know, it really annoyed her that so many of these kind of pro Daesh women were were at the same time flirting essentially with her husband um, using social media so so that was really interesting then insight having done this study where I was you know on the face of it everybody is adhering to these extremely strict gender divisions between men, the men's and women's communities and their separate roles and then this kind of you know sort of under belly of life going on which is a bit more subversive of those um, of those norms but but it's hidden which she was kind of you know telling me about so, but it's absolutely right. You have to kind of consider what is the ideology 
of the group that you're looking at. What are the what are the norms? What are the values? What is acceptable within those communities? Because you know, particularly for something like Daesh, those communities were very very strictly policing one another. A, a hugely uh, you know hugely suspicious of people that they didn't know coming into their midst. And it was uh, you know so Twitter very successfully purged that that space, its space of those um, supporters. But once governments were sort of you know basically. Um, hounding them to do so and, and they've done that very successfully and of course Daesh is not in the same position at all that it was back uh, in 2015. And I know that, uh, that some of these gender roles and particularly those for women in the far right are ones being explored a lot more in, in current research which is great and so one uh, one person I would give a shout out here too is uh, Ashley Mattis uh, who, who does a lot of work in this space but you know, in, in one of the courses that I teach on uh, radicalization and terrorist networks, uh, you know, I think it's also worth highlighting that, you know, in the far right, too, there has been so much uh, catering to, to women in different ways as well. So whether it's having, you know, whether it was like the KKK or White Aryan Resistance or Hammersmith Nation and some of the women's auxiliaries that they've had historically, you know, they, they did also have kind of dedicated spaces for women to interact in, in these kind of women-only forums. So they had names like the, the Ladies of the Invisible Empire or the Aryan Women's League or Crew 38. There's so much focus that's been placed on uh, jihadist groups and particularly ISIS and for very uh, for very clear reasons. But I think that, again, a lot of the, the interesting reflections that we have on uh, how women have acted and uh, how gender norms and roles have been understood and studied and analyzed in the group also give us really important reflections for looking at how other organizations across the full spectrum of ideologies really also kind of cater to different genders in different ways. And so I think that's that's something that I just, uh, it is important to really highlight because so much of the conversation continues to be on ISIS. And then, you know, this is something I've focused on for years now, but it is important, I think, to really reflect on lessons learned and some of the knowledge that's been accumulated over these years and really utilize it to look at some of these new concerns coming up as well and you look at the people who've been working on the far right and um and gender for years and you know people like kathleen bleed's like done a lot of work on the kkk and there's sometimes there's not enough kind of interactive discussion or conversation between those kind of different um so scholarship can become a bit siloed and 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 in a way that there's so much to learn from that scholarship that gone before on, on the far right, which is being rediscovered by a different set of people now, by, um, I think, sets of um, people who are more interested, in, for, coming from a terrorism sort of security studies perspective. Ashley's work is really good because she is, you know, looking at the ways in which, you know, maternalism, which we saw with Daesh, you know, in terms of um, thinking about mothers' roles and the ways in which women, there's sometimes this idea that, you know, why people can't quite understand why would women grasp on this sort of maternalism why would anyone proactively want to be in a space in which you know it's a domestic space but it's extreme it's prevalent across women absolutely embrace the power of maternalist roles and as joe mentioned before these kinds of the, the power that that gives you in in terms of the upbringing the rearing of a new nation because we're talking about, often we're talking about um, groups that have got this very utopian vision. They want to create, they see everything that's wrong. They have this. They have their own understandings of what's wrong in the world. They want to create this new society. And they want to do so um, using fa often family, kinship as a starting point. 
and the, the sort of recognition of the power of maternism, you know, and Ashley's talked about sort of alt-maternism in the alt-right and far-right. And and it's long been a, a sort of kitchen table activism that has also been identified in, in the far-right that is, it has pride in women's role in being part of women's groups and in embracing the domesticity of this as a pushback now. And even you've even got, you know, there's so many sort of, male-dominated groups, um, misogynist groups that sell themselves on their misogyny. Now, particularly in the online space, you know, the alt-right is really something that's kind of developed in the online space and uh, so many offshoots. And even with something like, you know, a, a group like the Proud Boys, where they even have their own, they do have, um, there is a sort of space for women to be involved in Proud Boys activities online. I think it's really interesting, the more conversations that develop between people who've got scholarship in different directions, that can speak to each other, that can, um, and you can see the resonances, and you can also see the, the, the spaces where these are not quite the same, and they're not always quite the same. And um, I, I think that the more conversations that happen between people coming from different fields, the better. So yeah, we think that the far right point is incredibly important also in terms of online propaganda. We've seen in terms of research is when it comes to women and gender in the far right violent extremist environment, the weed field imagery plays to play an important role, um, once again, stressing the importance of visual culture and violent extremism. Could you develop on this phenomenon and the importance on online identity formation and expression? My research encompasses both jihadis and uh, the radical right and looking at sort of talking, both talking to people and looking at um, online identities. Uh, the wheat field, so the, the far right is a space in which there's a lot of memes, visual imagery is extremely important. Um, I wouldn't like to say whether it's more important than in other ideologies. But the Wheatfield imagery is about, again, it's about this idea of utopia. It's about idealism, about ideal representations of womanhood. So women walking through Wheatfields, this kind of bucolic paradise of domesticity, of perfection, of, of feminine perfection. And that's what that imagery is about. And it's seen in a variety of different ways. These are aspirational utopian kind of uh, movements that need to visualise and need to propagate not just the reality, but the aspiration, the idealism of what the movement stands for. And it's also, it's symbolic. So women are, across the far right, you have women um, involved in in different ways. So the alt-right has seen a number of female leaders um, who have been also experienced a lot of pushback. So some of the far right allows space for women as leaders and some of it wants women to be in a symbolic role purely. And there's a lot of kind of differentiation. It creates boundaries between groups. So it's important for women to have a symbolic role as well as an actual role. And what you see here with these Wheatfield images is the importance of a symbolic representation of this ideal, idealised woman. And sometimes there isn't space in some groups for much more than that. For women, because some of these groups are extremely misogynistic, patriarchal, and uh, want to keep women out of leadership roles and into a more kind of support space. So let's go back to ISIS women and the use of online platforms for a second, and to quite a more recent example of a use of social media. There have been reports of ISIS women detaining Kurdish detention center, we stating that this women who continue to support ISIS and long for the return of the caliphate have been using social media for a crowdfunding campaign to find their way out of the camps. 
could you tell us a bit more about those campaigns? Yeah, like I think it's worthwhile to to kind of highlight that uh, that a lot of really interesting online ways of transferring and obtaining and exchanging money have been uh, used by women in ISIS. And so, for example, there was a case uh, of Zubia Shanaz in New York who uh, had she was raising Bitcoin or she'd purchased Bitcoin and a number of other cryptocurrencies, like over sixty thousand dollars worth, and had used this to to fund ISIS. Um, when we look at Al Hall today, there's been a lot of recorded cases now of women setting up GoFundMe pages and other kind of online fundraising campaigns to uh, pay for them to essentially be smuggled out of these camps, so to pay human smugglers. And Vera Marinova is another really interesting uh, academic who who looks at this in a bit more detail. But I think it has been quite interesting to see how not only have women used uh, so, for example, there have been a number of different uh, online channels uh, that they have as well that I've uh, followed and looked at. But th- they use them to not only exchange information, but again, share these kind of crowdfunding campaigns and fundraise to essentially help them uh, escape, which I, I think is quite interesting and uh, still ongoing as well. And as long as they do remain in in these camps, in, such as El Hole, the longer they're there, the, I think the more desperate many of them are to to really get out. There are prospects that have been so dire uh, for so long. It's just quite interesting to see the means for by which they're obtaining funding and what that means in terms of trying to address their current uh, situation. To zoom out a little bit, could you tell us a bit more about the online threat that women might pose and how it impacts the offline world? Um, as we at Tech Against Terrorism are very interested in how the online and offline kind of create this balance in terms of the effect or the threat of terrorism that we currently experience. So what could be the overlap between the online and the offline world, specifically to your latest publication on the similarity hypothesis, whereby you studied the offline gender dynamics of the far right and Islamist extremists? There are a lot of people who engage online in and participate either as part of, as members of far-right or other uh, extremist groups, who will never pose any kind of offline threat. So so how are you you thinking about what a threat is? Is it about a sort of threat to civility, to mainstream discourse? Because there's, you know, a lot of the conversation around what's happening online is less about, you know, it, it, it began to be about what is online radicalization? What is the risk of somebody being radicalized online, going off and committing an act of violence in the in the offline space? And there's very much this kind of conversation about these two things is very distinct. And now the conversation is much more about how to uh, the conversation has evolved. It's much more about the kinds of discourse that we want to encourage. What happens to our online spaces? when there is a preponderance of discourse publicly available, and that's not to talk about um, groups which are hidden behind passwords or on the dark web. So it's kind of what is the threat that we are explicitly concerned about? And we need to be clear about what those threats are, um, I think, before we know exactly what it is that we expect of online spaces. So many of the people, most of the people, thousands of you look at like, you know, um, to go back to Daesh, but you could look at the numbers that were online and how many actually ended up sort of going, traveling to Daesh, even though they were supportive of that ideology. The numbers are always, we're talking about minorities of people. So when we're talking about women 
and the threat. I'm wondering if you're thinking more about sort of the violent threat or um, something more situated in that online space in terms of civility and changing to mainstream discourses. So how do you think that gender stereotypes that we might have about women in terrorist and violent extremist movement have impacted tech platform response to online exploitation? And on that, what would be your recommendation for tech platform to be perhaps more sensitive to the gender question? I would just really highlight that, you know, being able to deploy a gender lens in all aspects of your work is, is incredibly important. And I think when trying to assess things like, again, threats, the the status, the role, the presence of on, uh, violent extremist groups online, what they do, who they're interacting with, and what that means offline. Like that gender lens just gives you such a valuable tool for, again, thinking through how you establish these platforms, uh, what kind of what kind of elements and aspects are, are inherent within those as well or that are designed within those. Um, and just being able to think a little bit more about when you are kind of tracing or tracking or analyzing uh, what that means offline, ensuring that that gender lens is there. What does that mean for men? What does that mean for women? What does that mean for uh, those kind of intersecting socio-cultural uh, categories as well, like age and race and, and so forth. I, I think I would just encourage that gender lens as an analytical tool or a, a lens that is that I hope practitioners um, and, and people working in the tech industry are willing to kind of embrace and utilize and deploy in their own work. But there's so much misogyny online. You know, one of the difficulties for tech platforms especially now we're talking about the far right, you know, we're getting rid of um, purging tech platforms and social media sites, essentially, of jihadist activity was relatively easy because um, they were distinct, they were identifiable, they had a variety of different symbolic sort of um, visual images that they used to communicate their ideological adherence to other people. But when you're talking about the far right, you know, if you look at um, Berger's Twitter census and um, on the alt-right, the delineations are not very clear. The boundaries are not very clear. And I've, you know, I've talked to people about removing uh, misogyny as part of violent extremism from and understanding that as something that you need to address in kind of looking at um, the far right online. But there's so much misogyny online and there's so much overlap between some of the themes that are prevalent in far right discourse with the rest of um, social media that the, the, the task for... Um, tech platforms and for social media platforms becomes so much more complex and so much more difficult. And I, and for me, that's, you know, it, it goes without saying that there should always be consideration for gender. It should go without saying, although it doesn't always. But the, the key issue, I think, is not around gender. It's around now trying to um, promote civility and understanding which which accounts, which identities are the ones that are in need of removal and which are just noise and which are part of a the broader mainstream and and the the boundaries between these are, are no longer as distinct as perhaps they were it makes it a very difficult task thank you very much that was dr joanna cook and dr elizabeth pearson discussing the need to consider gender in terrorism and violent extremism in online spaces and the role of women in those spaces we'll be back soon with another episode in the meantime find us on twitter at tech versus terrorists